Hello and welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. My name's Darren and I'm here with Faith. Hi. Pastor Faith. And we will get to the sermon in just a little bit, but we wanted to make some time and space to talk about something special that we've been having on Sundays. And it's a new song that Pastor Faith, you and your husband Josh wrote, and we've shared it with our community. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the name of it? Yeah. And where did it come from? Yeah, so it's called We Need You. Um, and I, I'm going to root this in First Corinthians 2 when Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Um, the, the first thing that was written for this song was the beginning of that bridge section that says, We don't need better plans. We don't need clever thoughts. We need your Spirit, O oh God. We don't want the wisdom of man. We want we want a display of God's power, which is really what the world needs. They don't need to see a show. Or even in the area of worship, they don't need to hear good music. We need to see a display of the power of God. So it came from that heart cry. And then the beginning of the song kind of sets up this space where we invite Holy Spirit. We open our hearts. We clear out all the distractions, the things that get in the way. And then just simply cry out for more of Him. And it's this, this longing to be a, a space where the Spirit would rest mm-hmm. as a community. Yeah, I love that. That's such a the heart and core value of Garden Church. Exactly. Knowing that the Spirit is present, like He's welcome to the party and we get to celebrate. And I so appreciate the beauty and creativity that you've been cultivating, not only with worship, but just something that we can invite the rest of our community into. And, and it's so cool when, when uh, in the recording of this song, it's the first time that we shared it. And it's like people have been singing it for weeks. <laughs> and it was just such a cool thing to experience. And so we're so happy for those of you that have experienced that with us on a Sunday morning. And we want to see just more original songs being birthed from this place. Um, that you're talking about, just being saturated in the Holy Spirit. So we are welcoming you to stick around after the sermon where you can hear a live recording of the song, We Need You, and I hope it blesses your heart. Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. Hey, grab a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there are some up here in the front. Um, We're going to continue our series in the book of Acts. If you're new with us, um, we're in a series called Empowered for Life. We're looking at how God um, delights in using ordinary men and women to do extraordinary things. Um, oh, gosh, I forgot one thing. I was supposed to announce that we have a picnic at 1.30 today at Bixby Park, or also known as Cherry Park. Here's the information. Um, look for the garden uh, sign. We're going to have a pop-up tent with the garden info. We'll be playing uh, uh, volleyball and all sorts of fun stuff. Bring some food for yourselves. Um, my mom is actually going to go early and reserve a spot. So, Mom, will you stand so everyone sees you? Um, this is my mom. Danae, and she needs anyone that's going to go at 1.30 but can head over after this service and reserve that spot and stay there. She can't stay there the whole time. Is anyone willing to do that with her? And just you can just thank you so much. So Joe's going to help um, if that's cool. Awesome. So you got some help. Did my part there. Thank you, Mom, for doing that. Okay. Acts. So we're in a series, Empowered for Life. And the story, is of, the story of Acts is just the continuation of Jesus' ministry through the, the church. 
um, we're seeing that the, the story begins in Luke. Luke gives us an account of Jesus' life and ministry. And Acts is part two of this story. And it's a story of how basically those that just say yes to Jesus are filled with the Holy Spirit and continue to do the work that Jesus did in the Gospels. And so we've seen uh, what happens when the church is filled with the Spirit. Uh, we recognize that the purpose of our lives is to point people to Jesus. That that's what it means to be a witness. That our lives are designed to be witnesses of the resurrection of Christ. And so we pick up uh, where Bill, Pastor Bill last week uh, left off. And so we're in Acts chapter 4. If you have a Bible, go there. Um, we're going to start in Act, uh, verse 32, and we're, we're going to get into Acts chapter 5. Um, and if you are new to this, I promise I'll, I'll make this make sense for you. and we'll make you, uh, won't feel, you won't feel left out this morning. So you guys uh, happy to be in the Word today? All right. Uh, if you guys brought your Bible, will you just hold them up real quick? Let me see your Bibles. Yep, the phones. How many phones do we have? Okay, cool. Uh, I didn't say uh, U version, but that's fine. It's funny that they call it the U version, right? It's all about you. Okay, anyways, so here we go. All, I, I use it, you're right. All the believers, verse 32, check this out. This is so good. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. All God's people said, what the heck's going on, actually, is what they said. Um, but they shared everything they had with great power. The apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy person among them. There was no needy person among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to those who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, from uh, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold the field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So, this is a snapshot Luke gives us of what happened when the early church begins to kind of unfold. And remember, we're talking about 5,000 people are Christian at this time. Maybe more. Um, because in Acts 2, we see 3,000 people are saved. In Acts 4, 2,000 more people are saved. Or in Acts 3, excuse me. Um, so we see that the number is growing, 5,000 people. And this is a snapshot of what the early church looked like. This is a marker of the early church. And, and the scriptures reveal to us that uh, the early church, they were to get, they, all the believers were one in heart and mind, and nobody claimed to have possessions of their own. Now, I don't know if that sounds miraculous to you, but it sounds miraculous to me that nobody saw their possessions as their own and they shared everything they had. Because we're taught in preschool to share. We're not taught um, how to separate mine and yours. We're taught how to share so it's ours. Do you know what I'm talking about? We're taught, one of, some of the earliest words we learn are no and mine. And if you have little kids, you know this. And, and you have to like distribute the toys among kids um, based on how much time they get. I mean, if you have multiple kids, you understand there is a sharing of the resources because it's not natural to us. And apparently what Luke is saying, that there is a miracle happening. God is doing something new in the church. It's explosive. People are being healed. Um, people are, are, are giving their lives to Christ. Thousands of people are coming to know Jesus. But one of the things that mark the church is this little word called generosity. That they shared what they had with one another and there was no need among them. That the Spirit of God empowers the church for generosity. That the church in its origin is designed to be a place where people share what they have. Is that miraculous? So people, and let me just clarify, this is not a commune. 
This is not communal housing. It's not mandatory that people sell all of their possessions. That's what they're saying is they would sell some of their stuff and they would give to those in need or give to the church and then they would distribute to those in need. It wasn't this uh, mandatory kind of command that you have to sell everything you own. That's not actually what was going on. They were selling extra stuff to share with those who had need. Um, that's pretty revolutionary. Would you agree? God's, now, now, why is generosity so important? Well, one reason is that generosity points us to Jesus. Generosity points us to the God we worship. You with me? How you handle your finances points people to the God you worship. So generosity is, is a marker of the church. And I, I thought, okay, we've talked about this before. How can I illustrate the significance of what's happening in the snapshot that Luke gives us before it continue? Because what happens next is devastating, okay? Um, so what, can we go to the slides, Brandon? Do you mind? What did I have after this? Empowered for, okay. okay, here we go. So the way I want to describe the church is, or the kingdom is like this. The kingdom of God is like popcorn at the movie theaters. Okay, so here we are. Now, most of us, when we go to the theaters, let's say you buy dibs, which I did yesterday. How many of you like dibs? You know what dibs are? Chocolate-covered ice cream. Yes, we got some applause for the dibs. Now, when you go to the movie theaters, let's say you go with a group of friends and you stand in line to buy a $6 cup of dibs or whatever it costs. I think it was 5 bucks. Um, uh, you might be like me, knowing exactly how many dibs you have. Right. So maybe you just, you know, walk into the theater like that, you know, and you're walking in with your group of people and you sit down and, and um, you're hoping that nobody else saw what you purchased. Maybe you're like me or maybe you're not. And even if the person next to you is your spouse, you're still hoping they don't recognize that you got the dibs. So you quietly pull out the dibs. You know what I'm saying? Like you, you just like you wait for the commercial, the loud noise and the preview or whatever. Or you might even cough to make sure that they didn't hear that the person next to you, you know, and you're like stuffing the stuff down behind, like the extra stuff down here. And then the plastic wrapper, and you're like, <laughs> and you just put it down and you just, you know, you're kind of covering it up slowly, hoping that it will last through the whole movie. You know, what I'm talking about? Anyone else treat their candy or dibs? Does anyone else treat life like this? You know exactly how many, and then the person next to you says, hey, can I have some? And you're, you're dreading that request. And because she's your wife, you're like, yeah, you can have some. And so, so you drop two in her lap or whatever, you know, and you know you've got 20 left. And so it's just like you're eating as fast as you can now because you know she savors them, but you eat really fast. Again, this is just, you know, this might be some of your experiences. So that's how most of us treat our stuff. Like going to a movies and you're giving out of what you'll have left. Do you know what I'm talking about? But then there's this whole other perspective that Luke is describing. He's talking about living in a way like you're getting popcorn at the movies. And not just any, not the small or medium, but the extra large popcorn that is bottomless. Do you know what I'm talking about? You go there and you grab extra boxes and you're, you're not trying to hide the popcorn because you know exactly what's going to happen when you sit down. So you bring it, you're like spilling stuff on the way. You don't even care where it's going. You sit down and you pull out the cardboard box is because you know people are going to want some next. So you're passing them down to people that you don't even know. You're like, you want some popcorn? Here you go. It's spilling all over the place. It's, it's halfway through. You're like, there's more where that came from. Right? See, here's the thing. 
the church recognized that all of life is a gift. That everything we have comes from Him. And if it's His, then it means that it's now ours. So many, so many of us live our lives worshiping a God who is scarce and not abundant. And we treat our stuff like dibs and not popcorn. You with me? Was that now I have to avoid stepping on all of this as we move around. But that's a good illustration for you to look at. That literally it's spilling all over the place. That God wants us to see that everything we have is His. And so our job is not to give what we have in percentages. Our job is to share this abundant resource because there's more where that came from. You with me? So that's how the church is to live. In a way that's truthful and honest with knowing where our stuff comes from. You with me? And so we're to live in a way that the kingdom of God is like popcorn at the movie theaters. Okay, so... Um, Acts 4 says they're all together. Stuff's happening. Joseph sells his property and gives it. Um, gives it to the apostles. It's just that's what he does. And obviously people notice because Luke records it in the, in the book of Acts. Now, um, just a couple of things that we need to know. Number one, God is doing something new here. You with me? The church is born and God is beginning to do a new work. The church is a baby. It's it's only in Jerusalem at this point. We're going to see it expand in the future. But right now, it's an infant in Jerusalem and God is doing something new. And how many of you know that anytime God does something new in your life, you experience opposition? How many of you know that anytime you take an inch in the kingdom of God, that you are opposed by the kingdom of darkness? I mean, am I, okay, if you don't know, well, let me explain something to you. There are cosmic powers at work against the kingdom of God. There are impersonal and personal beings that are working to oppose the way of God's life on earth as it is in heaven. We can call them demons. We can call them principalities. We can call it powers, authorities. Whatever. Paul uses all sorts of language to say that there is a warfare going on. And if you want to have a biblical perspective, you have to recognize that Jesus came to, to conquer and defeat the schemes of the devil. Now, in our own lives, this happens all the time. Now, God, what, what Luke records is how the enemy, how Satan is going to oppose the church. He'll first do it through threats from the religious establishment. God's doing something new, and the established spiritual community does not want a bunch of uneducated peasants doing something new on behalf of God. Have you ever experienced that? Where the opposition came from the very source of the spiritual leadership, or the the, the source of the spiritual movement itself. Where all of a sudden the institution is trying to hinder the move of God. We saw this last week. You with me? Thank you. One of us is with me. I'm going to preach over here now, okay? Um, The next way is that Satan is going to stop. Let me say this. So Satan will try to stop it from the outside and from within. The next way we're going to see that the enemy is going to try to corrupt the church from within. Which throughout history has been the most destructive. You with me? Let's read this story together. Because this is one of those odd stories that new Christians are going to love. Here we go. Um... Now, a man named Ananias, verse 1 of chapter 5, together with his wife, Sapphira, 
also sold a piece of property. Now, remember, we just read that Levite, who's also known as Barnabas, um, which you, I love Acts because they're like, you get rap names. Like, you get Levite, and, but he comes Barnabas. Like, Peter was Simon, and he gets a new name. It's like, we, we're given new rap Okay, nobody else cares about hip-hop. One person does. Yep, that was for you. Here we go. So, uh, with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? Um, What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. This is not the Old Testament. This is the New Testament. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Of course it did. Is anyone else freaked out a little bit? Okay, good. Me too. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. I think we need some new volunteers for those that are going to bury the dead in the church. We need some young men. That's just strange. About, and then look at what happens. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. Man, at that moment she fell down dead and uh, <laughs> down at his feet and died. Then the young men carried her out, and great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. As well, it should scare and terrify the church when people drop down dead after giving some money, but not all of it. Now, what's going on here, okay? If you fell asleep during those last 11 verses or whatever, or maybe you have ADD, let me explain what happened. God's doing something new. Some guy named Barnabas gives a bunch of property, probably was seen as generous. A guy named Ananias and Sapphira conspired together, sold a property, and said that they brought, basically pretended to bring all of the money that they got from the property sale but kept some of it. So they were pretending to be generous. Or they were saying one thing and doing another. Wait, let me say it again. They were saying one thing and doing another. And Peter recognizes that they're lying to God. Peter, re- How did Peter recognize it, do you think? Holy Spirit, yeah, that's good. Or also, do you think that maybe... Peter experienced the lies of the enemy in his past, in his own heart, when he denied the resurrected king before he was resurrected. He wasn't just confronting that sin. He was confronting the sin he experienced in his own life. You with me? And so they say this is, hey, they say one thing and do another. What's that called? Hypocrisy. Satan fills their hearts with lies. And, um, and, and then what happens is, well, they're judged and they drop dead. And then some young volunteers who signed up for it buried them alive. Or buried them after they died, excuse me. That's not in the Bible. 
Not, not that Bible, anyways. And, um, and then great fear sees the church because all of a sudden something, they recognize a powerful truth. So what's going on here? A couple of things that I want to just give you some biblical background. Genesis 3 is connected to this, where Adam and Eve conspire together, eat the forbidden fruit, and sin enters into the world. And because of those, the couple's actions, that single couple, Adam and Eve, because of them, the whole world was infected with sin. All of humanity was impacted by that decision. Are you with me? It's also connected to Joshua chapter 7. Joshua 7 is a story of the Israelites conquering the promised land, the promised land that was given to the Israelites. Uh, God gave them a couple of conditions. Go into the land, conquer the enemies, but don't take any of their stuff with you when you conquer them. Leave it alone. Leave those idols alone. Achan in Joshua 7 takes idols, takes gold for himself bronze for himself and buries it with his stuff. And God says, all of Israel has sinned against me because of that one guy doing that one thing. You with me? And so he's punished, but on behalf of all of Israel. So his one sin enters in and and impacts the rest of the community of God. What's going on in Acts? Well, it's an early church. And it's so young that God is protecting it because the church has to be a place of holiness. It has to be a place where people say one thing and do the thing they said they would do. If the community of God is filled with people that say one thing and do another, if they're hypocrites, if they're, if they're lying, how can the spirit of truth dwell in the community that is supposed to have the spirit dwell in? You with me? And so the story is about holiness. It's about God protecting the church for its main purpose, which is to live as a witness to the resurrected Jesus. And Satan tries to destroy it by entering, by, by planting seeds into the hearts of a few. Because what's planted, do we have um, the next one? So, so verse 3 says, how is it that Satan has so filled your hearts? He's after the hearts. Now, what's so powerful about this is this. I believe that what's, go to the next slide. Um, what is pioneered in the heart will take shape in your life. The seeds of deception that are planted in your, li- in your heart will grow roots in your life. So what is at the center of your heart? What's at the center of your heart? I want you to just think about that for a moment. What are the things that you value and treasure? Jesus has a lot to say about our hearts in the New Testament. And I think this is linked to something that Jesus teaches, Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 6. So if you have a Bible, go to Matthew 6. Uh, we go to the next slide. So here's what Jesus talks about when he talks about hearts. And I'm going to make this all connect in just a moment. Uh, he says this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. And if you have a Bible, I encourage you to go there. Here it is on the screen. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, There your heart will be also. And then he ends the passage connecting what we treasure with worship. And he says, go to the next, uh, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the only deity that is named by Jesus in all of the scriptures. He names this God money or mammon, which is possession, stuff, and wealth. 
And Jesus has a full-on attack against possessions. Now, before we talk about possessions, I just have to say that we all treasure lots and lots of stuff. Okay? Treasuring is part of our lives as followers, or as just as humans. See, treasures include money, but it also includes whatever you find significant in your life, wherever you find meaning and purpose, wherever you wrap your identity from. If for, if for me, it could be my reputation, my health, my job. It could be my dreams. It could be my family. It could be my status. It's possessions and stuff. And Jesus says, treasure things uh, of the kingdom. Treasure things uh, that will last for eternity. And he's not talking about bigger mansions when you die, okay? He's not saying, okay, treasure the mansion that's being built with all your good deeds. That's, that's not what he's talking. He's not talking about bigger wings or a, greater, a, bigger, a better glowing halo, okay, when you die. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, remember, Jesus brings heaven to earth. And we have access to the kingdom of God here and now. Treasure things now that last for eternity. Value and invest your lives in relationships, which will last for eternity. And doing good works, and creating beauty, and, and, and being generous, and living in a way that when you die, or the new age comes once and for all, you continue on living as you once did here and now. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you, do you, how many of you, this is brand new to you? Okay, it's new to me too. The way we ought to live is as though we're going to live forever. Do you know that? Okay. Okay, do you know that when we die, it's just the beginning? Okay, thank you. Okay, here we go. Let me start back. I'm just, I'm, I have a lot of assumptions. Let me work back over here. So we are to live our lives investing now in the things that will continue on for eternity. What are those things? Do you think it's your car? Do you think it's the new clothing fad? The new iPod or iPhone or Google Glass or whatever it is that you got to experience last Thursday at Google Downtown LA. Um, It's all hype. Google Glass. For those, okay, some of you don't know what I'm talking about. The new thing that's coming out. How many of you know about Google Glass? Anyone? Okay, I'm speaking. Okay, we're all on the same page. Good. Oh, man. And so, are we investing? Will, will Google Glass be in the age to come? No. I'm just going to let you know. Your, your favorite Kanye mix is not going to be in the age to come, okay? So, we are to invest our lives in ways that will continue for eternity. This is what Jesus is after. Invest, value, treasure those things in the age to come. So that when you, do, when, when you, when you continue on, You'll continue on to live the way you already lived. And Jesus says, look, you can't serve two masters. You, it has to do with being slaves. You can't, you can't be about God's business and the world's business. Are you with me? And so Jesus confronts this. And, he's, and when he speaks this in, in the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking to his disciples. And the disciples have made the decision that Jesus is the way to life. Okay? And he's saying, if you really want to live, this is how you ought to live. You have to decide, God or other, th- other stuff. You with me? And so he targets money and possessions as the primary opposition against discipleship. Because here's, here's why. The single greatest threat to our obedience and discipleship to Jesus is money and possessions. Or our money and possessions. You with me? The single greatest threat of our discipleship to Jesus is money. The single greatest threat to our witness as a church 
is how we handle our resources. We can't be people that worship God and do something else. We can't be people that say one thing and do another. We can't live for God on Sunday and live for ourselves in our dreams and our finances on Monday through Saturday. You with me? And the story of Ananias and Sapphira is God confronting that issue and saying, guys, no, no, no. You can't pretend to be generous. You can't shortcut the kingdom work. You have to be generous. You have to allow the, God, the, king, the king of the universe to permeate in your soul, in your heart. Because if you pretend, if you say one thing and do another, you will blow your witness as followers of Jesus. You with me? And so God judges and acts like a surgeon who diagnoses stage four cancer. Aggressively to preserve the holiness of the church. And the church, in the church, um, you know, it's, let's go to the next slide. So why, why does Jesus call out possessions and wealth and money? Because I don't believe there's a single greater idol in our lives that offers as much as, as, the, uh, as the idol or God of wealth. If you, if you look at what the God of wealth offers, it offers meaning and purpose and security and comfort and power and prestige. It offers protection. It offers recognition, validation, and favor. Would you all agree with that? Now, in the church, um, we are to reorient our lives, this teaching teaches us, so that our, as followers of Jesus, our, our schedules, our relationships, our jobs, our talents, our stuff, our energies, our money, all of that is reoriented to to be decided upon based on what he says. We are to reorient our schedules around the resurrected king. Do you know that? We are to reorient um, our dreams around God's purposes in our lives. We are to, to, to reorient um, uh, our energy. How much en- energy we have to do things based on what Jesus says. He becomes the God of our lives. And in the church, I think we struggle with this. Would you agree? We struggle with this. So, Ananias and Sapphira wanted to be perceived as generous without actually being generous. And you can't pretend generosity. And one of the greatest ways we witness as the church is through generosity. Do you know this? That one of the greatest ways we can prove that God exists is how we love and share with one another. And now now it's getting kind of serious because I'm talking about your heart. So I want to offer four tips. I have 40, but we'll just give you four. Um, Four points, okay, on how to live a life of generosity. Because the Spirit has to do this in your life. But I want to give us four concepts, if you will, okay? Are you with me? So write these down. I think these are helpful for everyday life. Number one is this. You have to worship the right God. If you want to live a life of generosity, if you want to be empowered for generosity, you have to worship the right God, okay? Here's uh, uh, one of the authors who I love who actually passed away. David Foster Wallace wrote this. He said, uh, he wasn't a Christian. He was an agnostic. He said, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for, some, um, for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, 
if they are where you tap your real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough, and it's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure. You will always feel ugly. And when time and age starts showing, you will die a million deaths before your loved ones finally plant you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they are evil or sinful. It is that they are unconscious. They are the default settings. How true is that? He's saying, look, the reason we worship God is because our default setting is to worship everything else. Our default is to worship our careers, our jobs, our finances, whatever it is that gives us our most. Some of us worship the validation of others. Some of us worship success. Some of us worship relationships, one relationship in particular. And so if you want to be generous, you have to worship the, real, uh, the right God. And when I'm talking about the right God, I'm talking about the God that's revealed in, in the scriptures. And, and so many of us are worshiping the God, I don't even know where I put it, are worshiping the, the God of dibs, not the God of popcorn. Seriously. Um, 2 Corinthians says this, uh, when Paul's writing to the church, this is, this is about what, how to be generous, this is about what type of God you worship. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. What kind of Jesus do you worship? Is it the Jesus that's just an addition, an accessory, a blessing machine that just wants to bless the life of your dreams? Or is it the God that reorients everything about you? Because he's reoriented everything about himself for you. You got to worship the right God. Some of us are worshiping the wrong God. Point number two, you got to start with what you have. Um, You... Generosity isn't about giving what you don't have. It's about giving from what you do have. How many of you know that generosity has nothing to do with an amount? Generosity has nothing to do with an amount. You have to start with what you have. Um, You don't learn generosity when you have more. You learn it when you don't have enough. Generosity is a posture, an orientation towards living in a particular way. Some of us, I just want to confront this idol. We are living in debt. That is not a biblical lifestyle. Some of us can't afford to pay rent. That's okay. The church is a place where that need should be met. Do you know that? And not through some programmatic way that you email somebody on the internet that you don't know, but by living in relationship. And we should have such an overflowing love for one another that it's like popcorn being spilled out. Do you know what I'm talking about? That's where it belongs. Some of you are living in debt, and you have no idea how to even begin to think this way. Well, let me start one way. Get out of debt. (laughs) Amen? That's all you need to know today. That if you want to pursue God with your life, get out of debt. Some of you are addicted to consumerism, buying stuff. Amazon Prime has cursed you. And people are looking at each other now. Okay, um, that is not a prophetic word. It's just an observation. We have to start with what you have. If you're waiting to get a bigger paycheck to start living generously, you will never live generously. Your lifestyle will simply grow with every paycheck you get. 
You have to decide now how you are going to orient your life and live. Third, you have to be disciplined and you have to be organized. Now, it's funny because you hear the word discipline about generosity and that doesn't make sense, but it does make sense. Think about this. In every area of your life that matters to you, you are organized and you are disciplined. What do I mean? Well, if you play fantasy football, you are researching who you're going to pick on draft day. You are watching every game. You are looking at the stats and you are observing how you ought to live in your fantasy world. Are you with me? If, you're going to pay, if, you, if you own a place, you're going to pay the mortgage or you're going to pay the rent on time. Otherwise, what? You get kicked out. Bank takes your house. You're going to buy a car. You're going to research the price. You're going to know exactly how it is. You're going to start a new diet. You're going to start researching recipes. You're going to start uh, calculating calories. You're going to start a new workout. You're going to wake up early to do this. But so many of us, we don't live with the most, one of the greatest assets we have. All of our stuff, our resources, our, our intellect, our social capital, our financial capital, our relational capital, our intellectual capital. We don't even use it. We're not organized. We're not thinking of ways to give it away to invest for the kingdom of God. We don't have time to to read the Bible, but you have time to wake up early enough to go work out. We have to get organized. We have to be disciplined. Generosity means you know what you have to give. Are you with me? Lastly, I just will end with this. It says, um, I just want to say for all of us here, let's take one step forward. You want to live a life of generosity? You want to learn how to give more and more of your income away or learn to live your resources postured in a way that's giving to the kingdom of God? Take one step, not two, one. Okay? Now, here, for those of you that we're talking about giving, I want to talk about giving this way. There are four types of giving. First of all, there's casual giving. Most of us are here. The bucket comes around, we throw some dollars in. We walk outside, somebody asks for money, we give them a couple bucks. Someone, uh, we just walk around, we're casually giving. It's not something that we're disciplined in. Uh, the second type is cause giving, and these are the things that are, are, touch our hearts. Something happens in Japan, a, a, a tsunami happens, and we want to give. That's a good thing. You, you meet a missionary, you want to support their cause. Um, and so we give cause-based. Most of our giving in the church is cause-based, excuse me, and why? Because we have power over it. We see the outcome. The next type of giving is the tithe, which is not a New Testament concept. The tithe is not something I can point to in the New Testament and say, you have to do this. I can't. But I invite people to start with the tithe because that train, that's a spiritual discipline that trains your heart for generosity. It's a setting aside of, of it says 10% or a percentage of your income so that you can be trained in generosity. And generosity is learning to live with recognizing that all of it's God's and, God's and how do I give it away to invest in the kingdom? You with me? Where are you today? One step forward for those of you that are in debt is figuring out a plan to get out of debt. One step forward for those of you that give based on cause is to start maybe disciplining yourself to tithe regularly or give a regular amount of money. One step forward for you that give regularly, up that percentage. Every year my wife and I, we, we get together in January and we say, okay, based on what God's empowered us to receive our income, how much are we willing to give? How much is God inviting us to give and test and learn and grow? And it's hard. It's a battle. And we, we pray and we fast for a week, Alex and I, to decide that amount every year. Why? Because generosity points people to Jesus. And if you were to look at our finances, my hope is that you would see that we worship the one true risen King, Jesus Christ.
And I hope that's the same for all of us. You with me? So, I want to invite you to follow Jesus with your finances, with all of your resources, and allow your lives to point to Jesus. I pray um, that, and I invite you to reorient your life around the God who has become poor so that you might become rich. That God who supplies the seed, the food, the God who is about increase and abundance might give you everything you need so that you may be generous. As Second Corinthians says, in chapter 9, now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for the food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge your harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way. How many ways? What ways? Every way. So that you can be generous on every occasion. Who empowers our gen- generosity? And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. But when you are generous, people experience God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word. We recognize that this is a a sensitive subject for all of us. That when we talk about money, we're talking about security, we're talking about protection, we're talking about identity. And so, Lord, I just pray that you'd be gracious to us now. That we would be open to you. And how you might want to change uh, and move us forward. To posture ourselves in a way that is saying what we mean and meaning what we say, doing what we say and saying what we do, Lord. I just pray that we would be full of conviction. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org. Well